Welcome back to Season 2 of the Dyad Podcast. We've taken a few months away to analyze data and get all of our clients taken care of, but now that we've entered fall survey season, I have a little time blocked off to create some new content for a brand new season of the Dyad Podcast. So what did I learn from creating a podcast? I learned a lot. It takes a lot of time and energy to create these things. Doing interviews, writing, editing, producing. It's a lot. But by the numbers, I'd say the first season was a pretty big success. Our most popular episodes have close to 1,000 listens, and we averaged around 700 listens per episode. I think that's pretty good. So as we enter season two, what changes should you expect from the Dyad podcast? First, I want to talk more about our research. Our most popular episode in season one was the one at the very end with Lori Hart, where Lori and I talked about some of the findings from the 2021 Dyad Strategies white paper. I like the idea of connecting with really smart people to help us process what we're learning and to help us connect the dots for our audience. So expect more of that. You should also expect episodes that are based around a topic with multiple perspectives as opposed to just doing a single interview. It's easy to just sit down and record an interview and call it a podcast. It's more difficult and more time-consuming to produce content around a certain idea or topic and then synthesize the perspectives of multiple people. But I want to do more of that in Season 2, and we're starting with this episode. In recent weeks, I've heard and seen a lot of chatter on social media and on group text messages that I'm a part of about this idea of a great resignation in student affairs generally and in fraternity and sorority advising specifically. The suggestion is that there is this wave of resignations across the country in FSL with professionals leaving the field in record numbers. As I began hearing more and more about this, I began to wonder, is this really happening Or is this just a narrative that's taking hold in our field without any real basis in reality? So I decided to go about finding out if the great resignation is really a thing. And to start, I decided to talk to an actual reporter who has done some actual reporting on this topic. I'm Lindsay Ellis. I'm a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. As it turns out, Lindsay was hearing some of the same chatter that I was hearing. And two days after I reached out to my contacts at the Chronicle of Higher Ed for someone to interview... Lindsay's article, The Great Disillusionment, dropped. So, if you haven't read her article, stop and go read it now. When I talked to Lindsay, I wanted to learn what she was uncovering in her reporting about this trend. So, in my reporting, I reached out to and and got to talk to dozens of people, um, some of whom um, had recently left higher ed, some of whom were still working in higher ed, you know, about how they felt, what, 15, 16 months into this pandemic and how they were considering the fall semester ahead. And the conversations were pretty wide ranging. And while some people certainly were walking away, you know, I talked to a number of people who quit without a job or moved into the corporate space. Um, What I sensed more widely was the shift, you know, that was maybe a little bit more subtle that Um, Some people aren't walking away, but they are making changes to how they're approaching work and life. Um, You know, they're setting clearer boundaries. They're saying, I'm not going to check email over the weekend, um, or I'm going to put a random mental health day on my calendar, you know, two months from now. Um, I think there's also sort of just a different perception of, of work. I mean, 
there's a lot of rhetoric in higher ed about campuses being a caring community or a family. And many staff and faculty now no longer really feel like that resonates, that their employers are kind of there for them in that same way. Um, and, you know, not everyone can, can walk away from, from work. I mean, there's obviously the salary, the, the benefits, the health benefits, especially in a pandemic. So I didn't necessarily see um, the evidence at this point to say, you know, this is a mass wave of resignation. But I, I can say after my reporting that, that a lot of people are thinking of, you know, I need to think about work as just work or just a job, um, which was really striking for a field that, you know, considers itself a passion or a calling um, to have that clear boundary you know, this is work and this is life, um, I found just really interesting. So according to Lindsay's reporting, the TLDR answer to the question, is the great resignation really a thing is, well, maybe. People are unhappy and they're setting some clear boundaries at work. And yeah, people are leaving, but it's not clear that people are leaving at any higher rate than they've left what's always been a pretty transient workforce. So if it wasn't clear to Lindsay whether or not the Great Resignation was really a thing, I decided I needed to dig a little deeper. I thought maybe the leadership of a certain professional association might have some data on the issue, so I called them up to find out. My name is Jason Bergeron. I'm the executive director of AFA. Jason, what evidence are you seeing that this idea of a great resignation is is a thing? Are are there data out there to suggest that this mass migration away from FSL is is really happening? Uh, So we don't really have a whole lot of data about like this specific phenomenon and this specific moment in time. Um, But this is not new for the fraternity and sorting profession. So we've been uh, sort of confronting and thinking through field departure in a lot of different ways. Um, It's because we've historically seen folks spend some time at an entry level and sometimes mid-level role and transition to responsibility for other areas of higher education, that's something that is, we're pretty familiar with. I think the thing that's really unique about this moment in time is that we're seeing folks leave student affairs and higher education in general. Uh, what we've seen anecdotally is that many of them are leaving to go to private and corporate industries. Some are remaining in the profession in some way and taking their talents to work at a fraternity and sorority headquarters, but many are leaving altogether. So while AFA doesn't have any hard data on this topic, there are some data points flying around out there to suggest that what Jason's saying is both A, true, but also B, not limited to student affairs, and certainly not limited to fraternity and sorority advising. According to Prudential Financial's Pulse of the American Worker Survey, that's a really long name, Pulse of the American Worker Survey, one in four workers is preparing to look for opportunities with a new employer, 25%. The leading reasons that people are leaving? Some of them are what you'd expect. Opportunities for career advancement, better employee benefits, stuff like that. But one of the new driving factors post-COVID has to do with the availability of hybrid or remote work. According to that same Prudential survey, 
87% of American workers who have been working remotely during the pandemic would prefer to continue working from home at least one day a week. 68% of those people reply that a hybrid workplace model would be ideal. And nearly half of the current remote workers insist that if their current employer doesn't continue offering remote work options long term, they will begin looking for a new employer that does. So obviously higher ed is going to have to come to terms with this. There's no replacing the in-person, face-to-face student experience. I think everyone acknowledges that. But will some universities be able to provide the kind of flexibility that most people say they want in their jobs? And will those universities be at a competitive advantage in terms of recruiting better employees than those who don't? I guess time will tell. As I began putting this episode together and digging into some of this data, I began wondering if some of this might be a grass-is-always-greener scenario. So I also wanted to talk to someone who recently left FSL and is now in one of these corporate jobs that Jason Bergeron talked about. I wanted to get a better idea of how different things really are. As it turns out, I have a good friend who many of our listeners will know who just made that exact transition. I'm Helen Lerman. I spent the first 11 years of my professional career on a campus and headquarters um, and recently left um, higher education and currently work for a professional services firm. So I started by asking Helen to tell me why she left FSL and how much COVID had to do with it. The decision to leave was definitely multifaceted and um, pretty thought through. Um, The pandemic itself highlighted items, but I wouldn't say it was the reason I left. Um, My reasons are kind of threefold, and I I wrote them down so I can stay on track. So the first one um, was benefits. Um, So looking at it from a holistic kind of perspective, right? Like you can't escape um, in a capitalist world that we have to work. And so what can our employers help us um, on on those items? And for me, um, now being mid-30s and a potential uh, family in the, in the future, whether adoption, IVF, natural, whatever the case may be, um, you know, higher education, uh, fraternity headquarters doesn't have the structure to support those items. And Unfortunately for a woman, those tend to have a date or a time frame in which that is like a thought process. Um, so that was really a big a driving factor for me to think long-term um, professional, professional growth, but also personal support. Um, so the benefits from family planning um, and parental leave, but also, um, you know, wealth building, a 401k, um, growth and the option to one day retire. Um, uh, there are you, some, you don't want to work until you're 70. <laughs> uh, no, you know, like my dad thinks I'm crazy that I would love to retire by 55, but I think it's because he grew up and, you know, the age where you worked and you kept working and, and dying was the reason that you stopped working. And, and that is not who I am. Um, he's also a farmer and I'm so far from a farmer that, you know, that's a, that's a whole nother conversation, even though I appreciate all that he gave me. Um, but yeah, so, you know, those were some things and, uh, you know, truth be told, we have some archaic practices in our industry when it comes to some of those things. The other two are a little bit quicker and just became such 
burdens, I think, and the long-term, which I don't know that I realized when I first started in the field. Um, but systems, infrastructure, and technology um, were things that became such barriers to do the work that we all agree is the work that's important, moves the needles, interrupts culture change, um, supports the students, the men and women in our, in our organizations. And you become burdened by lack of systems, lack of in infrastructure, and lack of financial uh, resources towards investing in technology. And you're spending a lot of people time, administrative time, doing those items. Um, and so the balance of the two um, I think becomes wearing on you as a professional. So to be fair, at the time that Helen and I talked, she had only been in her new role for a couple of weeks, but I was really interested in learning so far how her new corporate role was different from what she'd experienced in higher education and FSL. To some degree, it's not apples to apples because size, but I think from a parsed out inside look, if you will, to where it varies and how it could be translated. Um, I'm day four on this transition and I have three people assigned to me that support me and my career at the firm. So one is dedicated to help build relationships across the firm. One is dedicated for my career development, wherever I would like to go in the firm. And one is dedicated to the metrics that are determined to um, you know, be successful in the role. And so those three people um, you know, have reached out and, and the relationship has started and they've introduced what, they, what and who they and how they play a role. Um, and, and I found it interesting because I think I've been on now three larger um, onboarding calls, um, a generic one for all the joiners that started on Monday, um, one specific to the team, and then one um, more so in the location where I sit in Dallas. And every meeting, I took a tally, metrics, um, uh, goals, and what success looks like were mentioned 11 times in each meeting. Every meeting was 30 minutes long and they talked about when the reviews would happen. One of the things that I think that we miss in higher education, we have goals. I think a lot of people have some clear defined success metrics, whether it's from your board or it's from the, the institution or department, but we are, we are assuming that the that the employee who owns those metrics understands how to achieve them. And we assume that meeting once or twice a year results in, in completion. And that is such a miss. And that was something that I felt like my last employer, we, did a, we were moving in a great direction of quarterly check-ins on these metrics. Um, you know, maybe even monthly, depending on the, the level of staff on where these are, but we can't just assume because they were written down or in a university human resources portal that the person understands what it means to do them. And a performance review isn't the time for that to occur. And what I've noticed in four days is that won't be what happens in my current <laughs> role. 
So I began chuckling there at the end of Helen's statement, because of course a majority of her training is devoted to building an understanding of what success looks like in her role. How many people who work in FSL can say the same thing? I went on a tweet storm about this recently, and it's probably the thing that's been on my mind the most lately as people have been discussing this great resignation. If you assume, based on the chatter, that the great resignation is more pronounced in FSL than in other areas of student affairs, then I think one of the reasons has to be the additional stress brought on by the lack of clarity regarding the answer to a very simple question. What does success look like? Ask any five people in the line of reporting on campus, from the coordinator of FSL all the way up to the university president, what success looks like in the fraternity and sorority community, and you'll get five different answers. The actual answer is anybody's guess. Recruitment stats? Community GPA? Just keep us out of the news? Who knows? I think this lack of clarity makes FSL work even harder, especially for professionals on campus which I think is at least one of the driving factors behind the high burnout rate in our field. I tested this theory on someone still doing the work and doing it very well. I'm Chris Graham. I serve as the Director of Fraternity Story Life um, at Florida State University, and I also have the pleasure and privilege of serving as the President of the Association of Fraternity Story Advisors. So Chris, I have this theory that the FSL work is harder because the metrics for success are less clear. That one of the reasons for the high burnout rate is that we've done a poor job determining what success looks like. And that is one of the reasons that makes FSL work so much more stressful than other roles in student affairs. What do you think about that? (laughs) I would, I think that's a fair point, right? And I often say, uh, Gentry, I, I'm very, 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 very aware, um, having lived through some very challenging experiences. Um, I can leave campus, every day I leave campus, I realize that I could return the next morning and my life could look very different, right? But on the point of, of what, what should I be focusing on? What are the metrics for success? I think at least the people I talk to the most, from a director perspective, actually do have some really good ideas on what the metric should be and what success could and should look like for, for a fraternity sorority community. Your point is very valid in that oftentimes the expert, the content area expert is not positioned in a way for a range of reasons to actually, to actually implement the vision on what they believe this those metrics should be and what success could look like. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing to me. I think I'm a huge college athletics fan, right? And if if we think about this in a in an athletic context for a moment, you hire Nick Saban at Alabama and you 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 give Nick Saban the resources that he needs to implement his vision because you want to have success at the, at the highest level that can be sustained. It would be incredibly, um, <laughs> um, it would just not be smart to hire Nick Saban and and then dictate to Nick Saban on a daily basis what he needs to focus on to be successful. You mm-hmm. hire Nick Saban and you let him dictate to you what he needs to be successful. You try to give him those resources and, and look what happens. My point is, 
we hire people who oftentimes are talented, who oftentimes do have a really good grasp on what success is from, from a fraternity story life community perspective. But those folks don't have the voice and agency oftentimes, or enough times, I should say, to lead, right? <laughs> the, the, the policies are dictated down to them. The expectations are dictated down to them from the vice president of student affairs, from the president, from a board, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and I'm not saying that's the, that's the case everywhere. Um, but, but, but I think that's the rub, right? It's, 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 if you hire a team of experts, people who are incredibly talented and knowledgeable, how much do you lean and rely on them to actually create and implement a vision and a strategy? Uh, and I, I and, agree and, with and, you. And, and again, I'm not a vice president. So I don't want to speak for them. What, what I, I agree with you. And what I would say is I couldn't tell you because Nick Saban's metrics are so clear, win football games, win championships. The metrics are very straightforward. Who's our Nick Saban? Who's, 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 who's the FSL Nick? Like, who's the best? How, how would you even go about determining that? Because the metrics are so unclear. I could make some guesses just on my own observations, but that, that it's just that. It's my opinion it's my attitude and it, i can look at our data and say well these are some campus where things seem to be better but like we've not even defined as an industry what success looks like so i can't tell you who's the nick saban of, of afa because we don't we don't have any way of measuring that right that's fair that's fair yeah. <laughs> that's a huge that's a huge opportunity for all of us though, right? Just because we don't have it, that doesn't mean that we can't create it or can't, can't try <clears> to scale out um, a, 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 a path forward to have, to have that because yeah. I think it would serve all of us well, all of us. And I, you know, I, I put this in my little tweet storm the other day. My wife is a nurse practitioner in an emergency room in a children's hospital. They don't have the option of remote work, right? They're, they're in the shit every single day, 12 hour overnight shifts, seven hour waits, they're seeing, she's seeing a dozen to 15 COVID patients in a shift. Uh, they're way overworked. They're way overstressed. That work is hard work, but the metrics are very simple and they're very straightforward. And, and I think that makes the work less stressful because you can easily point to the points you put on the board that night, the kids you cleared, the kids you got healthy, like it's the work is straightforward, even though it's very hard and very stressful. What Nick Saban does is very hard and very stressful, but it's easy for him to point to the success that he's had. And I think, I think it's harder for FSL folks to do that. They, and they, and so they gravitate towards things that are easy to point to look at our recruitment numbers. I think recruitment numbers are a meaningless statistic. Who cares if you've got a lot of kids joining chapters, if your chapters are providing a shitty experience? That's, that's a terrible metric, right? But it's easy to tabulate. It's the McNamara fallacy, right? The, the data which is easy to tabulate becomes the most important data, even though that data may not mean anything, right? And I, I, I worry that we suffer right. from that a good bit, right. that we focus on things that are easy to calculate right even though those things really don't matter in terms of the, the culture that we're trying to build. Right. And the things that we focus on. Right. And, and I always encourage people, you know, when you're interviewing for a job, the questions that folks are asking you during that process are a good indication of the things that they're concerned about or the things that they care about. And so 
if you if you ask the average director um, the questions that their supervisors are asking them, what percentage of those questions are actually things that we think and believe as directors our supervisors should be focused on or, or concerned about? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that would be um, a, a majority percentage. It wouldn't even be close. Yeah, um, and I, I raise that point because. Those are the things that we tend to focus on because we know our supervisors or the vice president or the president of the institution are focused on those things. And so that's where we choose to spend our time, even if we know and believe that our time could be better spent elsewhere, that actually that could actually increase the likelihood that we do have more success. So I think that's a fair and valid point. As Chris noted, this isn't just an FSL problem. This is also a management problem. Frankly, I'm regularly amazed in my work with the poor management in student affairs generally and the poor management of FSL staff specifically. At the end of the day, the problems associated with a great resignation are human resource problems. Organizations that properly manage their human resources in the wake of this pandemic are going to thrive, and organizations that fail to provide for the needs of their people are going to struggle. Lindsay's reporting in the Chronicle reminded me of this as she shared an anecdote about a student affairs employee who hadn't taken a week's vacation in over a decade. At the end of the day, that's a management problem, right? How can we allow staff to work themselves to death and burn themselves out like this? This strikes me as a really big problem. I definitely heard stories of bad managers and, you know, pre-COVID, during COVID, Um, you know, one person told me that he was running a residence hall in, in the pandemic and every single meeting he had with his supervisor, you know, his supervisor was telling him like, oh, like you didn't get enough people attending this virtual event and totally, you know, berating him for not meeting these set goals when he's sort of feeling like, hey, I'm doing my best here. Um, I think, so yes, I mean, I think managers and management, do cause people to leave and feel really unsatisfied with um, with their careers and their roles. I think the pandemic, you know, perhaps for some people highlighted um, that they didn't have a great manager and that they couldn't trust this person to, you know, approach them with compassion, um, recognize sort of the, the challenges of um, working in, in this environment at this kind of time. Um, the example in, in Iowa, I actually think is a little bit different and, and also a really interesting, but, but slightly separate, um, challenge within higher ed, you know, and, and I heard this from, from my source there, Jenny Connolly, but, but I also heard it from a few other people that it wasn't really the manager. It was sort of this culture of, can I take time away? Can I take time for myself? Um, this fear of, you know, if I were to take a couple of days off, what, you know, <laughs> how many emails will I come back to you? How many students in need would I, would I miss? And I think that sort of internal expectation that many people have on themselves, you know, that's a cultural challenge that colleges are going to need to work through too. Like, what sort of environment are you creating for your employees? And, um, and, and what sort of subtle expectations are, are they absorbing about the culture and, 
and the work. And so I think, you know, I heard stories from a few pockets of people within a unit basically saying like, we're all going to just outwardly explicitly call on one another to use our time off to not check email. Um, you know, one person told me, right. Um, you know, if, uh, that a colleague told her, if, if I see you respond to an email over your vacation, I'm going to be really mad. Um, <laughs> so explicitly saying, you know, this is the norm that we're going to set. And this is the cultural difference that we need to create. That's, you know, more of a culture question. It probably is also a management question, but it's not you know, explicitly about, you know, one individual's actions. Sure. It's more about what tone are you setting for, for your department and your colleagues? So bad management leads to bad culture, right? We focus on the wrong objectives and short-term goals, burning all of our staff out along the way, creating cultures of student affairs martyrdom where we brag about who is working the longest hours and we wonder why people leave. So management is definitely an issue. But what about those specifically who manage FSL? What do they need to be thinking about to keep more of our best and brightest in the field amidst this mass migration out of the profession? That's a question I posed to Jason Bergeron. Yeah, it's so interesting that you talked about human resources work because most of my responses are in the human resources space. So you have set me up very, very nicely. I was doing my best to set up my guests. I appreciate appreciate (laughs) that. Uh, So we're pretty, we've been engaged in a larger initiative more recently, kind of focused on staffing and effective practices around building a fraternity and sorority support and advising operation. And one of the things that we try to be clear about is that this work is multi-year work. Um, The work of the fraternity and sorority professional, you're not necessarily thinking about retaining them year to year. Mm -hmm. It's really helpful to broaden your scope. You should be really thinking about how how do I retain them five years to the next five years, which is not historically how folks are socialized into doing the work of student affairs, um, or fraternity and sorority life. Uh, so there's an HR lift that is just um, within that, that's beyond sort of what we think about the performance evaluation piece of human resources. It is in uh, job creation. Um, it's in, it's structural in nature. It is um, about upward mobility. I think a really interesting conversation that we've been wrestling with through this initiative is there is a kind of real lack of the ability to be upwardly mobile in the fraternity and sorority profession, barring a few instances. We've got some folks who have been able to find upward mobility within the profession, but overwhelmingly, it's still a challenge for us. And so is that because campuses aren't confronted with folks who want to stay in those roles long-term, so they've never really been confronted with how do I, I've now got somebody who wants to stay longer. How do we support them? They just haven't been confronted with that. Or is part of that departure that up and out because folks are maybe interested in staying longer, but they are not getting those opportunities because they're not developed within a campus structure. Yeah. And so most of that is really human resources. I was reminded of I can't remember when the book was published, but it had a pretty substantial um, impact in the world of student affairs as one size does not fit all traditional and innovative models for student affairs practice. And so I think around that is that 
there are multiple ways to do and to do and to structure this work that we have unexplored. Uh, so that I also see as a human resources lift, um, partly because we are asking people to do uh, so many, many things. And part of that thinking is not out, not all outcomes can be achieved at the same time, which is something mm-hmm. in this sort of assessment world that we've known for a long time. It's like, you are asked to do so many things. You're not going to be able to focus on all of those things at one time. So pick, pick the pick things two that or are, three things. Yeah. Yep. Pick the things that are most central to you. And those will have spillover impact into those other ways. Uh, that's not a, a thinking that we typically apply in and as we structure and resource fraternities reoperations because they're doing, you know, they're worried about public health and safety. They're doing leadership development, recruitment, membership intake and other joining processes, membership education, general brotherhood, sisterhood, siblinghood. Um, and so part of that is putting models in front of them that maybe center elements of those things. And a lot of the decisions that you make in as an operation may be centered in those approaches. So what does it look like to take a public health and safety approach to the entire work that you do within the fraternity and sorority community? What does that look like structurally? Um, And so a lot of what I would put in front of them would be how do you think about the work as multi-year work and how do you develop some upward upwardly mobile structures to support that? And how do you diversify the level of thinking around how you can do this operation? One of the things that's been challenging for the profession is fraternities and sorties came before the fraternity and sortie profession, so to speak. And we've allowed the structure of of the fraternity and sortie industry to guide how we structure the campus experience. And I would argue that we've got more opportunity to be innovative in the ways that we do that on a campus beyond I've got an IFC advisor and they're responsible for the IFC community. I've got a NPHC advisor and they're responsible for the NPHC community. One of the things I see this notion of upward mobility is something I've thought about a lot. We don't have, so there's, when I say mid-level management and student affairs, I'm talking about those people who supervise FSL. Within FSL, we've not cultivated mid-level managers, right? So most campuses, you have directors, you're more seasoned folks, and then you've got a smattering of coordinators. And and there's only a handful of, of campuses. I mean, I can literally probably count on my two hands, those that have really groomed mid-level people into those assistant and associate director roles in order to maintain some of that consistency. So, so the, the, the result of that, I'll, I'll pick on Alabama because I used to work there, but they're a perfect example. They recently had a director vacancy. So it's like all the people that you've got that might be eligible for that job are coordinators who have only been in the chair for a couple of years and when you're a coordinator and you're in that chair, you can only be in that chair for a couple of years. You've got to move out, move up, make more money, whatever that looks like. And so all these people who would be eligible for that role don't, don't have enough time in the chair, right? And, and so they've moved out, right? They're like, well, I've done a coordinator of Greek life. There was no place to move up. So now I'm overdoing conduct or student activities or whatever, the job with 
less bullshit than than FSL. And then laterally, who wants to move to Alabama? Who wants to go take that job, right? I mean, and those you, you think about the upward trajectory in the field, like some of those bigger jobs. You know, I think about Michigan trying to hire an FSL director a few years ago and how many searches they went through. Alabama just went through a few searches before they finally landed on their candidate. Like these, these big jobs at these big schools scare people away. Like they don't, they don't, they don't want those jobs. And so there's not a bench of people who've been doing the work five, seven, 10 years who are ready to graduate into those director level positions because we've not, it's like you're either a director or you're a coordinator and very few places have figured out structures to build a bench Right. And and to have those people who do that work, to your point, for three, five, seven years and then and then progressively work their way up into a director level role. And I, I see that as a big challenge. we got to do a better job creating opportunities for growth within the profession. And those just really don't exist in the numbers they need to. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think there's sometimes a concern, especially as you're searching for some of these really high impact roles as director of fraternity and sorority communities um, at some large, large institutions or just like highly complex institutions. It doesn't necessarily need to be large. Um, there's sometimes a concern of folks who are hiring a director wanting to already hire somebody who's a sitting director elsewhere. Yeah. So as we think about this, we've got to develop a system where we're not just cycling the same people through many of these roles, that there is some upward mobility, that there is a bench, so to speak. And I, and I know some associate directors out there in the fraternities or professional community who are doing substantial lifts mm -hmm. as they should be, um, who are ready to take the helm. And given the sort of high visibility nature of the role at some of these places, it can be difficult to be the campus who's like, you know what, we're going to dip into the bench. We're going to go for somebody who by title work has maybe not sat in the director chair, but is doing a, a substantial lift already. I understand that there's a level of fear and hesitancy that sometimes is associated with that. So what occurs is kind of a recycling of folks who are in yeah. director level roles. I think about like Josh Welch, who was at North Carolina state forever as an assistant associate director. And like, he was ready to be a director long before he became a director, but he was in a structure that allowed him to climb and advance and build that skill set. But so few institutions have the, I don't, I won't say capacity because they're doing it in other departments, just for whatever reason in FSL, you know, vice presidents will say, oh, FSL is my biggest headache. That's, that's my biggest pain point, but I'm not investing in building any sort of a bench there. I'm not investing in building any sort of a, of a, of a meaningful opportunity to, to retain good staff. And it's like, it just leaves you kind of scratching your head sometimes. Yeah. I think where AFA has, is really excited to take some leadership in this space is around an expansion of the thinking about who is doing the work of the fraternity and sorority profession from frontline on up. And so AFA is thinking about, we have a responsibility to prepare folks in whatever way they come into doing the work of fraternity and sorority, whether that is a much more traditional path that we would think of as I come in as an entry-level professional and I sort of move up through, I'm upwardly mobile through the ranks of the fraternity and sorority profession, or 
I become a senior student affairs officer with little to no experience in the complexities of fraternity and sorority life. And now I am defecting to or defaulting to what is common practice in sometimes conflating that with best practice. And, you know, we both, you know, we both know for, you know, best practice and common practice are not the same thing. Um, yet we often fit, we often use those synonymously with each other. I would say we almost always use those synonymously with one another. I don't disagree. I I've got to say, I, I don't know if I can call this a best practice. It's a gentry practice. <laughs> <laughs> whether that whether or not that makes it best is a, is a matter for for debate overlaid across all of the covid related challenges in the last 18 months has been the black lives matter movement and concerns about diversity equity and inclusion on campus as i was doing my homework for this episode something i kept hearing was that the biggest migration out of the field was seen among young professionals of color Chris and I had the opportunity to explore that phenomenon in our conversation. I watched, you know, as I try to remind people, I watched the knee on George Floyd's neck. And as traumatic as that was, th- that's not the only knee on the neck of people of color, and, and in particular, Black men in this country, <laughs> right? Um, I, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to be dramatic, but but I am telling you from a lived experience and from talking to other Black men and Black women in, 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 in higher education and just in society, they're vice presidents of student affairs that have their knees on, on the necks of their professionals of color and their staff. There are, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're leaders across, you know, in higher education enterprise that have their, you know, the proverbial knee, if you will, on the neck of their staff of color in terms of, you know, are you trying to silence them? Are you trying to support them? Do you understand the unique challenges that, that they face by serve by trying to serve the students on their on your campus every day, every not everyone but many people released the statement right last last summer and for many of us as professionals of color or I'll, let me speak for myself, I feel like there was much more substance in many of those statements than there has been in the work since those statements were issued, and, and that that's a shame. And so you know. You, you, that was the convenient time for everybody to profess as loud as they could. We care about these issues. Yes, Black lives do matter. Yes, we want to do better by our Black faculty and staff. And though, though I've seen very, very few tangible actions since that would make me or anybody with a brain and a heart believe people at that level are actually committed to supporting their professionals of color, in particular, their Black men. And so I think it's much bigger than just FSL, but, but within an FSL context, it's challenging because, you know, the range of constituents that you work with and serve, many of those, you know, folks, you don't have any control or influence. Well, you can try to influence them, but you certainly don't have any control over them. And so what are the national organizations doing to advance these efforts that could trickle down to a different climate and culture here locally, right? So a good example of that is, you know, you work with alumni, right? And sometimes, those are the folks with the problematic attitudes. Those are the folks that look at somebody like me when you enter a house for a chapter event and you're wearing a shirt and tie and they say, oh, are you are you the director? Um, or they say, well, I thought you were, you know, one of the contractors here that's, you know, here to fix something in the facility. I mean, I could go on and on and on about the range of experiences yeah. people that look like me have, but it's challenging. And I think, quite frankly, Gentry, if I, I don't want to oversimplify this because it's very personal, but also challenging is most folks don't really know what to do. And most folks in my, and, and I don't want to 
you know, assume things, but I'm saying this based on what I've seen, not what, I, what I've read, because it's easy to release a statement. I don't think most people, I, I, let me say it this way. I don't think enough people know what they actually need to do to advance in these efforts. And I don't know if that's because they just don't have the interest or the capacity or what, but there's a lot of work to do. Putting this episode together has really made me think a lot about where we are as an industry. The great resignation to the extent that it exists is really a reflection of much deeper rooted issues that have been bubbling just under the surface for years. Only paying lip service to DEI without having a clear commitment to addressing the inequities in the work, bad management, a lack of clarity about the objectives, and often focusing on the wrong objectives. These issues aren't new, but during the last 18 months, they've been brought to the surface. Combine all of that with state governments in many states in a rush to get back to normal, even if that means sacrificing the health and well-being of college and university staff, and it's no wonder many of our best and brightest are leaving. Moving forward, the second season of the Dyad podcast is going to devote a lot of time exploring some of these deeper-rooted issues that are impacting FSL work. We'll start in episode 2.2, which will be out in two weeks, where we're going to explore the deepening levels of distrust that are often pitting campus administrators against students, headquarters, and alumni. Until then, thanks for tuning in. We're excited to be back for season two. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.